Sup, Antioch. Uh, love being back with you. I want to look today, what does it look like to be honest without being judgmental? How do we honest without being judgmental? Because I think when someone hurts us, when someone does something wrong either to us or maybe they're doing something wrong that we're concerned about, uh, we have one of two tendencies. The first is uh, we'll tell them, but we'll tell them kind of hypercritically, like our goal is to tear you down. Uh, and so we're kind of, we can be overly critical and fault finding. Or on the other side, probably more of us, if you're like me, we want to avoid conflict and so we'll ignore it. And we won't actually be honest about what they've done or what they're doing or the ways we've been hurt. And, and so we kind of ignore it. We're conflict avoiders. And that leads to its own type of problems. Resentment can build. Is that really even the best way of caring for them if they're doing something that's not healthy or good? So I want to ask this morning, how can we be honest without being judgmental? And Jesus is going to show us that the best way is to own your stuff first, right? That we might own our junk first. If you go to John 8... And we're going to read uh, John 8. This is a famous passage about the woman caught in adultery. And starting in verse 2, we read that early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, talking about Jesus. So the temple, this is like Washington, D.C., the Capitol, the steps of, you know, the crowds are gathered. This is kind of the big public square, center of town. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. All right, let's stop there for a minute. Uh, this is a famous passage, the woman caught in adultery. And the way that we often tend to approach this passage is, all right, Jesus, it's either Moses or mercy, right? Like uh, either you uphold the law and kind of go, uh, the law is a good thing, or you kind of minimize or avoid the law to show grace instead. What we find here is that Jesus takes neither of those alternatives. What he actually does is he doesn't avoid the law, but he goes through the law in order to get to grace, what we're going to see is that Jesus actually walks through the three major movements of Old Testament adultery law in order to get to grace. And now here at Antioch, uh, we've been in a series, um, the Ten Commandments, that you guys have just kind of come to the end to. And in that series, you know, exploring what do the Ten Commandments, the sort of the capstone of the law, mean for us today? And so today, it feels like it'd be appropriate to take a look at, now, now that we've got this perspective on God's robust vision for life and the law, how do we carry that forward as his people? How do we use the law appropriately today? That's one of the things that we're going to see. Well, one of the first things that we see here in this passage, the first question we should be asking is they bring this woman and she's caught in adultery and they bring her before Christ. The first question we should be asking is where's Waldo, right? Where's Waldo? The dude is missing, right? It says that she was caught in the act of adultery. Now, newsflash, it takes two to tango, right? It doesn't say that she was suspected of adultery. It doesn't say they thought that maybe. It says they caught her in the act, and it takes two to tango. Uh, she is not being accused here of masturbation. Uh, that could be done uh, solo. She's being accused of adulteration, which is a team sport, right? So there is somebody important missing from this picture. There is something fishy going on. They're using her as bait says that uh, they are out to trap Jesus. 
they're using her as bait and she's the worm on the hook. And so there's something fishy and something corrupt that appears to be happening here. Was it a setup? Was it a, we don't get all the details, but we're, we're led to believe here that there's something suspect going on. And this brings us to the first movement of adultery law. So if we go back into the Old Testament, uh, Leviticus 20.10, it says that if someone was caught in the act, they had to actually be caught in the act, right? And if that happened, then both parties were to be brought. So uh, you need both parties present. And here we only have one. And not only did they have to be caught, but there had to be two witnesses. And neither of those witnesses could be the spouse, And those witnesses, uh, if they were found guilty that they had lied or there was entrapment or they could have prevented it, like they knew it was going to happen, they could have prevented it, uh, and they didn't take action to prevent it, then they themselves would be liable to the same penalty of the person that was being accused. And so there's an important piece of, there's an important piece of the law here that they're avoiding. They want to kind of put her under the bar of the law, but they want to excuse themselves from it. And I think you and I today, we can often be like the Pharisees in this regard. They're looking at what's wrong with her and not what's wrong with them. And uh, similarly, you know, they're, they're holding her to a standard, but it's a double standard. They're getting ready to kind of try and take the speck out of her eye, but they're ignoring the plank in their own. And Jesus teaches about this regularly, but one of his most famous sayings is in Matthew 7 verses 1 to 5, where he says, uh, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. (laughs) Now the reality is, I think you and I are often like this in that we don't like to admit when we're wrong. One of the reasons it's hard to take a look at the plank in our own eyes that we don't like to admit when we're wrong. I remember I once had to apologize to my grandma. So I was a kid and I had done something mean, maybe said something cruel or rude to her. And so I got sent to my room and I was crying. I was sad. And when I kind of came to and came out of my room, my mom was like, all right, now you're going over and you're going to apologize. You're going to say you're sorry to your grandma. And so, you know, so I kind of walked across the room and kind of wiping the tears from my eye and uh, you know, I looked up at my grandma and looked back at my mom, looked up, and my grandma was kind of sitting on our chair. She's like, uh, yes, mijito, which is kind of a Spanish term of endearment. And I looked up and um, I whispered to her, hey, there's something in my eye. <laughs> like, I told her there's something in my eye because I didn't want to be embarrassed that I was crying about what happened and I didn't want to apologize. This is my out. And then my mom from across the room asked grandma, she's like, hey, did he say it? And she covered for me. She's like, yeah, he said it. Now, I didn't, right? Now, now the irony was, even at, a young, well, so even at a young age here, I didn't like to admit that I was wrong, that I had been in the wrong. And it can be kind of cute as a kid, but as we get older, it's still true of us today. We don't like to admit when we're wrong. And there, I kind of talked about some, having something in my eye as a way to avoid owning my stuff. But Jesus here is using it in the opposite direction, using uh, taking a look at what's in your eye, owning something in your eye as a way of owning and acknowledging your junk, right? That we are called as Christ followers, first movement is to take a look within and own our own stuff. And the challenge is that we often find faults in others more readily than we find them in ourselves. 
We're quick to see their specks and we're slow to see our planks. But people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, right? The picture here in the scene with Jesus is almost like they're walking, you know, it's like walking up to someone and going, hey, your shirt's on backwards. And they're like, oh yeah, well, you're in your underwear, right? Like, if you're gonna point out something that's wrong with someone else, you should probably first take a close look at yourself. I love, uh, there's an author, Paul Miller, and he talks about uh, this idea of doing beam research, what he calls beam research. And the idea is uh, when you're in a conflict with someone, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a coworker, um, of uh, not avoiding the conflict, but first taking some time to reflect and look at, dude, is there something that I need to own in this? And I would suggest marriage has been my chief mentor in this over the years. Uh, as my wife Holly and I, when we got married early on, you know, a lot of our fights or things would go like this. Like I would come to her and like, hey, you did this. And she'd be like, yeah, well, you did this. And I'd be like, well, yeah, but you did this. And she'd be like, okay, but you did this. And we would just kind of keep upping the ante of accusation. And what I found was the power of when I would come to her, my first thing would be, hey, sweetie, I'm sorry, I did this. And just kind of own my side of it even if it was like 90% her and 10% me. You know, like, <laughs> okay, most often it was 90% me and 10% her, right? But even if it's, you know, even if it feels like, hey, mine's the smaller piece of theirs, the power when we come to that person, we say, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm gonna own, I'm gonna lead by owning the piece that I have to play in this. And what I found is the defenses come down. And with Holly, it's like, when, when I lead with that, she's like, she already knows often, like her side, you know, and it creates freedom to go, oh, yeah, but I did this, and okay, but I did this. And that vulnerability together can actually lead to restored communion and health. Not always, but it's a good approach, is that we would start with owning our peace first. And it is interesting, Jesus doesn't say, don't take the speck out of their eye, which sometimes, you know, if you're like me and you like to avoid conflict, we like to use that maybe to say, hey, don't deal with other people's stuff, just deal with your own. Jesus doesn't say, don't take the speck out of their eye. He just says, before you do. And so there's still the significance here of being able to approach someone and deal with the conflict, uh, to deal with the thing maybe that is unhealthy in their life or they're doing wrong, but to do it in a posture where we first take a look at ourselves. All right, let's move on in the passage, uh, verse 6. It goes on, it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. <laughs> now, I love that. First off, I love Jesus's non-anxious presence, you know, that here, again, you're like DC, capital steps, crowds are all around, media reporters watching. This is like life or death. These people bring this woman. What, what's your verdict, Jesus? What are you going to say? What are you going to tell him? And Jesus is like, I'm going to do a drawing, you know, and <laughs> just... It's like he's so unperturbed by what's going on around him in that respect. He cares, but he's not drawn into the anxiety of what surrounds him. So he wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, they've got to keep pressing him. Okay, Jesus, come on, what's your take? As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, all right, let's stop there. Uh, the piece we see here, they come to him saying, hey, can we stone her? And rather than lowering the bar, Jesus, so that she can kind of hop over it, Jesus raises the bar so high that everyone comes underneath it 
and essentially tells them, everybody must get stoned, right? <laughs> right like, like, <laughs> all right, not that kind of stone. Right? <laughs> We're in the Northwest, but I'm not a pothead. You know. right, but <laughs> not, not that kind of stone. But what we see here, this brings us into the next movement of adultery law where when he uses this phrase, let he who is without sin be the one to cast the first stone, the first stone was a significant phrase. In Old Testament adultery law, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 7, these two eyewitnesses, the people who caught the couple in the act, the people who were the first to see it, if they were going to say that, if they were going to testify, they had to be so willing to own the accusation that they themselves would be the first to pick up the stone and throw it, right? And why? Well, I think part, like stoning was a common, you know, a practice in the ancient Near East in this part of the world in this time and place. And I think part of it was to restrain or restrict the human tendency to use the justice system and all uh, vindictively or manipulatively, right? It was going, if you're going to sign your name on this, like, Again, if you are found guilty of lying or of manipulating the situation, if it's found that you knew about it and you could have prevented it, you are liable to the same death penalty. And so signing your name on it by throwing the first stone was a big deal. It meant that you were willing to come under the same penalty if it was found out you were off. I think part of the logic here, God's heartbeat in the Old Testament law, part of it was to deter a mob mentality where uh, once it's, it's hardest to be the first one. And once momentum builds, though, it gets easy to jump on the viral bandwagon. We see it online on things like Twitter today and where, where people can just pounce, right? Like somebody does something wrong and maybe the first person's got to step out and bring the accusation. They've got to kind of throw the first stone. But once the snowball gets rolling downhill, you just see people beginning to dogpile on. And so these first two are significant. It's to deter a mob mentality. And it's going, uh, they have to, when it says he who is without sin, I don't think Jesus is just saying if you've never sinned in your entire life, right? I think he's saying if you're without sin in this scenario. Because uh, the, the deal was, the phrase in the Old Testament was if someone exercises sin in their judgment, if they, uh, if they, if they sinned in their judgment, which meant, again, they had lied or uh, manipulated the situation, then they would come under it. And so... Jesus doesn't go around the law, he goes through it. He doesn't lower the bar so that the woman can jump over it. He raises the bar so that they all come underneath it. He doesn't excuse the woman's sin, he exposes her accuser's sin. He doesn't say, you don't deserve punishment. He says, you all deserve punishment. I love uh, Romans eleven thirty two, where Paul speaks to this. He says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. God raises the bar in order that we all find ourselves under the, judge of the, law, the judgment of the law, in order that he might have mercy on all. That it's no longer, it's not based on our performance or whether we were better than others or good enough. We are all in need of mercy. We all find ourselves in need of forgiveness before the king. The reality is, though, uh, that you and I, we often want to lower the bar, right? And there are a lot of areas that this happens in, uh, a lot of areas of life and society and things. But um, one of the areas that, the, the, well, the area that this passage is dealing with is sexual ethics. And that's an area that uh, is really tough for us today. So it'd be worth talking about uh, that today. 
And so we often want to lower the bar because I think uh, the concern is if we hold a high view of sex and God's vision for sex and all, I think the fear is that we would be perceived as judgmental by those around us, right? Like, like if we're honest with what we feel like God's call is, his standard, his vision, the fear is we would be perceived as judgmental. And so if we were to say, um, yeah, I believe that, you know, sex is to be saved for marriage, uh, you could be judged a prude, considered a prude. Right? If we were to say, yeah, I think adultery violates the faithful character of God and that God stands against it, you could be seen as being judgmental against people. Right? If you were to say, yeah, I believe divorce uh, cracks the icon of Christ and the church and the union with God that sex is designed and marriage is designed to point to, you could be told, yeah, you're just naive. Uh, if we believe that marriage is the, it involves the one flesh union of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for life, you could be told, hey, you're a bigot. If you were to say, yeah, I believe porn is a problem that actually uh, shapes you, like the plasticity of the brain, it actually uh, can rewire you in the ways that you look at uh, women or men or the sexual, your sexual kind of other, then uh, you could be told, hey, come on, it's just no big deal. Right? And so I think for many of us, the fear is that if we would kind of hold to God's view, that we would be perceived as judgmental. And so in response, though, I think our tendency is to want to lower the bar and pretend that it's no big deal. And so we will take a kind of a low view and say, hey, come on, lighten up. The law is no big deal. Jesus came, you know, saying, chillax. Like, don't worry about it. Everything's all good, right? Uh, that was back then. This is now. Uh, but if we lower the bar then I think the danger is we can be dishonest with the reality of things the way that God has designed creation and our world and life to be set up. Uh, we can drift from God over time. The guilt can kick in, feeling that you're not a true Christian. Uh, that can lead to distance from God and our spiritual life, a sense of distance from God and alienation, and it can set us on a path that can ultimately lead to destruction. And we can find ourselves in the awkward spot of saying yes to things that God says no to. So, what is the solution? Well, again, I think uh, Jesus here points to the solution. Uh, it's not to lower the bar, and it's not to use it accusatory. It's to raise the bar high enough that we all find ourselves underneath it. It's to raise the bar high enough that all, we all find ourselves underneath it. So when I get asked, like, hey, do you think uh, adultery is wrong? My response is to go, yeah, but Jesus actually says, Matthew 5, if you've even lusted after someone in your heart, that you're guilty of adultery. And I, that's a problem I've had in my life, right? When someone says, hey, do you think um, porn is wrong? You know, and I go, yeah, but I think it's more than just not uh, viewing things that are demeaning and objectifying to others. I think Jesus actually calls us to lift up and to care for our sexual other, that men we would lift up and care for women and women would lift up and care for men. And I have to confess, I haven't always done the best job of doing that. Guilty. Blusing here, it's not minimizing uh, that some things are sin. It's maximizing that you sin too, and that I sin too. It's not excusing sin, but the best way to avoid judgmentalism is to be willing to expose our own sin, our own complicity, and kind of the brokenness of the world and our life kind of falling short of God's vision for the fullness of life as he's designed it. And so Jesus-centered compassion involves raising the bar high enough to find ourselves under it. 
Okay, and as a side note here, I think it's worth uh, discussing briefly here kind of the, the law, because some people, when we talk about the law in the Old Testament, uh, there can be the sense of, well, Josh, aren't you just picking and choosing, right? Because you've got some laws that are about shellfish and not wearing, you know, don't eat shellfish and don't wear clothes with two fibers. And uh, how come you're not, you know, you're picking these laws, but not those? Well, I think it's helpful to understand the way that the church has historically understood the law. And one of the key ways that the church is often used is to see the law as kind of being motivated by three different areas, the civil, the uh, ceremonial, and the moral. So the civil, this had to do with Israel as a nation, going, uh, Israel is a nation with a government and, and all that. They're a political society, and they need kind of civil laws for how are we going to organize and order our, our life as a people, as a society together. And one of the things that's changed uh, from Old Testament to New Testament is now that the church is no longer a, uh, a nation, political nation like Israel in the same sense, but is now a multinational, international, multi-ethnic the international body of Christ, and we find ourselves around the world under all different types of governments and civil societies and all, and so we're called to kind of obey the laws of the land in, in the areas that we find ourselves. So the civil aspects, we don't, we're, we're not held to in the same type of way as Israel was back then. The second arena, the ceremonial, this had to do with things like the, the sacrificial system, uh, as well as some of the practices that were designed to distinguish Israel from the surrounding nations. So this would be things like the not eating shellfish, the dietary laws, uh, things like the clothing, uh, not wearing clothes with two fabrics. These kind of things that were designed to set Israel apart from some of the practices associated with the surrounding nations. And things like the sacrificial system, where what we find here is that uh, it's pointed to and ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So we no longer offer sacrifices uh, because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice who's fulfilled that part of the Old Testament law. Uh, we no longer uh, are held to the same uh, customs or things that were to separate them from the surrounding nations because once more we are the international body of Christ where life with God gets enculturated in our different areas here. Uh, but then there's the third area of the law, the moral. And uh, this has to do with more of kind of the ethical realm of uh, practices that uh, seem to be more grounded in God's character and his vision for his people and life in the world. And what we find is that uh, Jesus not only affirms these, he intensifies them. Uh, throughout his ministry, he not only affirms these aspects of the law, but he intensifies them. And Acts 15 is an important passage where it's the Jerusalem Council where as the gospel goes forth af after Easter and people from all these nations are coming to Jesus and coming to encounter him, uh, Gentiles, people outside of Israel. And the big question is, what parts of the law do we need to hold them to? And what parts have, have been done away with and, and, and they're not necessarily bound to? And as the Jerusalem Council wrestles with this in Acts 15, what they end up coming to is... Um, you know, essentially going the civil and the ceremonial, they're not held to, uh, but idolatry and sexual immorality are the two big ones. And it's kind of a window or a lens into going the, the ethical prescriptions of the law, which you go back to places like Leviticus, and these tend to be clumped together, uh, that, that, that we are, as followers of Jesus, kind of called to hold to God's ethical vision for our lives as his people, his world. And what this means is that if you are a follower of Jesus, but you're lowering the bar on sexual ethics, then you're not really following Jesus, at least not in this area, right? <clears throat> well, 
But fortunately, uh, Jesus comes with grace and he continually calls us back to himself and he continually calls us into his vision for life and fullness and wholeness as his people. Uh, it's not that we need to be judgmental at the world at large, but that we as the followers of Christ, we as the church, that we would press into life with Jesus and press into obedience and living into uh, the reality of what he desires for us. Okay, well, let's take a look now. Uh, when Jesus raises the bar, let's look at how they respond. How do they respond? This is verse 9. Okay, it says, uh, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. I love that really quick how it's the oldest ones who walk away first, right? Like when you're a kid, when you're younger, we all think we got to all figure it out. Right? Like I know, I, 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 but the older you get, the more you realize what you don't know. Right? The older we get, the more we realize, man, I, I don't have it all figured out. There's a lot. Uh, and so as Jesus kind of raises the bar, the oldest ones recognize, man, I got nothing to throw. I got my own junk. And they begin to walk away one by one, the oldest first. Until Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. All right, what we find here is that Jesus brings conviction without condemnation. Jesus brings conviction without condemnation. Sometimes you don't go run into Jesus. Like sometimes you get dragged kicking and screaming to Jesus, right? And I think it's interesting to reflect, oh man, what is this woman feeling in this moment? If I were in her shoes, I think if you were in her shoes, man, I'm probably feeling a sense of shame. Like I messed up before God. Uh, man, I'm probably feeling embarrassment. If there's an aspect of this that's just public humiliation. Again, we're like at town hall, the public square, downtown, like everyone's watching. It's probably shame and embarrassment, humiliation. Probably feeling a strong sense of fear. Like I'm about to die at the hands of this angry mob around me. And probably feeling anger. Right? Like there are powerful folks who are part of this, but I'm the only one kind of getting scapegoated and bearing the weight of the situation. But now, as she stands before Jesus, like what does she see in his eyes? Right? And on the one hand, I suggest she sees nothing in his eyes. Right? There is no plank that he has to remove. Jesus is the one person there with no sin. He doesn't need to do beam research. He's the one person who's innocent before him. So he's got nothing in his eyes in one sense, and in the other sense, he's got everything in his eyes. She sees the presence of love. Like this is the God of love who has taken on flesh and come to walk among us and to restore us as his people through his grace, his mercy. And as Jesus interacts with her, he brings, again, conviction without condemnation. You can be saying, well, how does he bring uh, conviction? Well, this brings us to the third movement of adultery law. It's interesting. If you're like me, you know, I often wondered what is going on when he bends down and writes with his finger. And uh, some people have speculated like, oh, he's writing people's names or others like, oh, he's writing the laws or whatever. Uh, but no, what he's actually doing, I believe, it's drawn from the third movement of adultery law known as the trial of jealousy in Numbers, um, Numbers 5. 
And the deal was, if there was someone who, you didn't catch him committing adultery, but it was suspected. You couldn't find the two witnesses, uh, but it was suspected. There was strong suspicion. Then uh, what happened was the trial of jealousy. And what happened would be uh, the, the, the person or the people accused would be brought before the priest in the temple. And notice where we are right now. We're in the temple. Jesus is being depicted as the high priest here at the temple that she is brought before with this accusation. And because there were no witnesses, what the priest would do is he would bend down and he would write with his finger in the sand the accusation leveled against the person or people. And then he would take a cup of holy water from the temple and he would sweep the accusation, the dust of the accusation into the holy water and mix it together. Now it's interesting, Jesus has just said in John 7, just going into this, that he is the living water identifying himself with the holy water of the temple, the living water designed to go out into the world. And so they would mix the accusation and the dust into the drink, and then the person accused would drink it. And depending on the result, uh, Yahweh was to determine whether they were guilty or innocent. And so here we have this picture where Jesus is the priest in the temple who she has brought before. Jesus is the living water with which this accusation gets mixed and stirred up. And Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh who has come and now is able to discern her guilt or her innocence. And when he says, go and sin no more, the assumption is that he's brought conviction, that there's been sin, that actually this was a true accusation even if her accusers weren't playing by the rules. And so we find here that Jesus surfaces her guilt, but he doesn't condemn her for it. He doesn't ignore her sin, but he calls her to repentance. Go and sin no more. It's loving of Jesus to not ignore our sin, right? Because sin can enslave us. Our issues can control us and can lead us to destruction. But Jesus brings up what we've done wrong, uh, not to be judgmental, like hypercritical. Jesus brings it up not to tear us down, but in order to set us free. Jesus' motive is love, and it's for our health and our best interest. And the power of the scene is, man, it's good of Jesus to not ignore our sin, because when we come to grips with the seriousness of your sin, it points you to the splendor of your Savior. Right? Like the seriousness of our sin points us to the splendor of our Savior. Jesus can set us free because he took our place. Uh, as we head towards Good Friday and Easter this week, um, man, I'm just struck. One, one detail here, I want to draw our attention to this passage that I think John is alluding to the coming cross in, in, in John here. Uh, okay, one detail here is uh, says at the beginning that she was brought into the midst of him, and they, they brought her into the midst to stone her. And that phrase, into the midst, it shows up again at the end of John 8, only now it's Jesus, and they're out to stone him, and he has to leave in, in the midst of them, right? And often the Gospels like to use phrases like this that, like, as echoes or links that tie themes and threads together. So we see here in John 8 that like bookends, the, the passage opens with her being brought in the midst to be stoned. And then by the end, she's been set free and now Jesus is in the midst getting ready to be stoned. And ultimately they won't stone her, but they will metaphorically stone him with the cross. And the next place this phrase in the midst shows up 
is at the cross where Jesus is hung and placed in the midst of two thieves. The picture here is that Christ is able to set her free because he takes her place. Jesus is able to set us free because he takes our place. We are the woman. I believe that yes, she is an individual and the scenario happened, but also I believe she is a picture of the church and of us all. That she is depicted here as a representative of the people of God, the church. That we were caught in the wrong. That we were brought before the judgment seat of God's holy presence as in the temple. That we have an accuser who condemns us and who is able to hold the bar of the law over our head. And yet we have Christ as a savior, a mediating high priest who takes our place. Jesus has broken the power of the law, not by going around it, but by going through it. Jesus has taken the curse of the law upon himself by bearing the weight of the punishment that was ours to bear. And now he calls to us as his people, go and sin no more. Does anyone else, neither do I condemn you. Jesus says to you, whatever you might have to bring to the table this morning, he says, neither do I condemn you. He invites us to receive his mercy and his forgiveness and to go and sin no more. As we approach uh, Good Friday and Easter this week, uh, I think it's pertinent, kind of a powerful uh, thing to reflect on as we kind of come through this, this series on the Ten Commandments and the law, and now we come to this reality that all of us find ourselves under its weight and its power, yet we come to Christ, who ultimately at the cross bears the weight of the curse of the law, taking its punishment upon himself in order to offer us forgiveness, that God in Christ bears the weight of our guilt and he offers us forgiveness instead to set us free. So as we come uh, to the table this morning, we come to the bread and the wine. We come to the body given and the blood shed. We come to Christ, our King, who entered into the midst of our condition with us, who took and bore uh, the consequence uh, that was ours to bear, and who offers his very presence to be united with him as the bride of Christ, as the church, and to be set free into the freedom that is found in life with him. Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, we come this morning to feast on the presence of Christ our King. To celebrate and give thanks. That word uh, Eucharist, uh, the communion elements, like it, it comes from the, the phrase to give thanks. And, and in the early church it was actually a celebration. We come this morning to celebrate the freedom that we found in Christ. The life that he's given in order that we might be set. So come to Jesus this morning as his bride who's been purchased by the power of his blood. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you that uh, you, God, you have approached us with honesty without judgment. I thank you that you uh, care enough about uh, our sin, our evil, our wrong, rebellion, the stuff we've done, God. You care enough about us not to ignore it or avoid it or pretend it isn't there, but to approach us and in love to call it out, Lord. God, we uh, repent and acknowledge and own this morning the ways that we have been holding others to a standard that we're unwilling to hold ourselves to, God. The ways that we have used 
uh, your justice, your righteousness, your goodness, God, to uh, tear down others for the ways that they've fallen short rather than to recognize the ways that we have as well. God, I, I pray that uh, you would make us a people who recognize how much we've been forgiven, God. For those who've been forgiven much, love much, Lord. And God, I thank you that you don't, though, just kind of lower the bar so we can all hop over it, but that you raise it, God, so that we all find ourselves under it. That you are actually out to restore your world. You're out for the reconciliation of all things. And that involves, in part, setting right that which is broken, which is off, which is wrong. And so thank you, God, that you call us to your bigger, fuller, brighter vision. And Jesus, ultimately, we thank you, God, that you bring conviction without condemnation. That you invite us into life with you, into union with you, and that your purpose and your motive in calling out the stuff in our lives, God, is not to tear us down, but to build us up and to set us free. And so this morning, God, I pray if there are any who have been struggling with um, judgmentalism, God, towards others, God, I, I pray that as we come to the table this morning, we would find freedom from that in the cross. God, and that we'd be able to uphold your vision for the world from a posture of love with full of grace, Lord, as you have had for us. And God, for any who might be struggling this morning with being honest about hurt that others have done to them or things that people are doing wrong or concerned about, God, if they've been kind of avoiding conflict or ignoring it, Jesus, I pray that this morning as we come to the table, you would shape us to be a people who can speak truth and love and not just avoid the gnarly stuff and pretend it isn't there. And Jesus, we love you. We give you praise as our king who's come to unite us in life with yourself. And as we anticipate Good Friday and Easter this week, God, our Eyes are set on you as the king who bears the weight, God, of our condemnation on the cross in order, God, to set us free from the law and the power of your life and your spirit. Jesus, in your name and for your glory that we pray these things. Amen.